The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. The stuff that is being talked about and that is uh, being made, making the papers and making the news across the Atlantic, Ivanka Trump has found herself subpoenaed in one of her father's multitude of lawsuits. This one, I think, the uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James subpoenaing her in respect of that, which adds to the woes given the uh, Georgia case now has some of the lawyers flipping against them. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. On this side of the water, though, main topics for discussion. The coalition seems to be falling out with itself, um, both the Business Post, the Mail and the Sunday Independent are all telling us that the sort of huff that broke out in the wake of the budget in relation to health is still lingering and that there is a lot of uh, aggravation and a lot of mutual resentments and a general sense that it's all done and we should really have an election. We will see whether or not that is the case in a, a couple of minutes. The other thing where there is a lot of resentment knocking around is in relation to Michael D. Higgins, our president, because his comments in respect of Israel and in respect of what Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, had to say in relation to Israel uh, have gone down like a lead balloon with the Israelis. And the uh, Sunday Independent today is leading with the Israeli ambassador being as close to critical as an ambassador tends to get. So we'll get into more detail on some of that as well. There's also the front page of the Irish Daily Main, a thing that um, has been getting my goat to some extent for the past while, which is they, they splash across the top of the uh, paper. World exclusive interview. Rebecca Luce lets rip at Beckham. And inside the paper, they dedicate three, four, I think, pages to Rebecca Luce and David Beckham. If you were living in a cave at the time, just to remind you, Rebecca Luce was David Beckham's semi-interpreter, guide to Spain, PA, and uh, ultimately ended up being um, his co-participant in an affair. Let's put it that way. Uh, which then led to massive tabloid coverage and all the rest of it. And one of the things that she is saying, and there is a certain legitimacy to it, is, you know, that documentary that he put out, all of that whole period got characterised as it was very tough for David and the family and very tough for Victoria. It didn't mention the fact that the reason that it was very tough was the underlying affair and that he was kind of responsible for that, which I think raises a whole question about modern documentary making not being modern documentary making. You know Ken Burns who does those long lingering historical um, documentaries where he takes a single shot of the uh, Civil War veteran and then gradually pans while talking. Ken Burns has been very critical of the sort of the modern documentary because essentially the David Beckham documentary is highly entertaining, very good watch, very glossy, but it's just a massive ad for David Beckham. A bit like the way that The Last Dance was for Michael Jordan. Very entertaining, very interesting. But once you're executive producer of your own documentary, which David Beckham was for his and which uh, Jordan's company was for Jordan, it does to some extent suggest that maybe you're going to put a shiny, glossy top on it. Well, the Irish Daily Mail is telling us that Rebecca Luce is having none of it and she's unearthing all of her uh, previous grievances. So if you want to read about them, they're in the mail. Meanwhile, the papers all went to bed uh, last night too early to have uh, gotten, at least I think they all went to bed too early to have gotten the really shocking story which was the lotto fell over. The one thing, in, in times of trouble, what can you rely on? You can rely on the lotto coming out with a little adju independent adjudicator, ball spin, somebody wins something and we move on. And it has been this way since time immemorial. Not last night, because last night, uh, Kamal Ibrahim came out. He did his opening uh, monologue. 
Then he, uh, to quote, I think the way it's being reported by uh, one of the papers, he departed from his script by saying, ah, a noise you never want to hear from a dentist or on live TV. He said, ah, unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, the lotto draw cannot be completed as scheduled. The draw will be completed as soon as possible. Please hold all your tickets and await further announcement. It's live TV, so what can you do? See you soon. Thankfully, Detective Pikachu was there uh, to step in when the lotto draw was aborted. Now, saying it was aborted for technical difficulties, well, of course it was technical. It was hardly philosophical reasons that they abandoned the lotto draw. So it didn't give us much of an insight into what happened. Thankfully, Fran Whirty is available. Fran is the Corporate Communications Executive at the National Lottery, and he can get us to the bottom of it all. Fran, good morning. Hi, Anton. How are you? This is the joys of live TV. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say you're having a busy 12-hour period, Fran. Yeah, do you know, we actually had our uh, Good Causes Awards last night, so we were all in uh, in the ballroom uh, with Minister Donoghue and, and distinguished guests when we heard the news coming through. So look, uh, it's been a busy night, all right. Um, so look, I suppose just to go into the number of it, um, I suppose I know it was uh, mentioned on the news there, there's no real uh, issue with any integrity of the draw or the numbers drawn themselves. If anybody who knows the draw, they'll know that um, there's three draws. So a lot of plus two is drawn first, and then a lot of plus one, and then the main lotto draw. So I think Kamal did amazing last night to hold it all together in fairness. Um, so what happened at the very start of the of the show, the lot of plus one draw drum, uh, there was a technical issue with that, which basically caused it to start ahead of any of the draws. So it started drawing out the numbers. That's never uh, happened to it before. It's under a lot of pressure at the moment. Well, no, but believe it or not, they're highly sophisticated machines. Um, you may not think of it by looking at it, uh, but they but they do need the regular kind of calibrating and, and regular services by specialists. So it was just a technical issue with that drum set. So what we'll be doing coming up to Wednesday, we'll, we'll be taking out that drum set and we will be getting all of the lot of drums again calibrated just to make sure that they're getting regular services. But there's no issues with them at all whatsoever. Now, when that happens, do you stop it and start again? Because some numbers will have come out. So how do you decide whether or not, you know, you know with um, aviation, once you pass V1, that's it, you're taking off no matter what. Is it like that with the lotto? If ball number one comes out, we're committed. That is exactly it. So that's what happened. The lot of plus one draw set, a drum set, basically uh, picked out six six main numbers and a bonus number. So they stood um, as as the official draw result. Um, but basically, we have a procedure in which a technical event, if it does occur on TV, uh, the recording of the draw continues, but not the live TV broadcast. So I suppose we would do fifteen hundred, around fifteen hundred draws a year. Some on live TV, some are not, and. You know, this is this is the first definitely that that I've come across. So it's just unfortunate that it happened on live TV. So it does mean that though that anybody who had tickets, who um, none of it is different to any other lotto draw. If you've won, the numbers will be published, and you can go and get them. That is exactly it. So look, uh, there was no huge winners last night. So we are asking people uh, to go to lottery.ie or check their app, scan their tickets or scan them in store as well, just to see if you are one of those prize winners from last night. The other thing is, Fran, just before I let you go, um, this it's not up on the player, nor is it anywhere on YouTube, nor is it anywhere on social media. It's great crack. Would you not pop it back up for our own entertainment value? Uh, do you know something? We were actually talking about that last night. Um, you know, I uh, I think it's something that we should should maybe do, put it up onto our YouTube channel, let everybody have a look at it, 100%.
Ryan, thanks very much for coming on this morning and congratulations on the awards last night and sorry that you got distracted from them by this. That's Fran Huerty, who is National Lottery Corporate Communications Executive. Now, the other thing that is uh, making a lot of the news and uh, again, a bit like the lotto draw falling over, it happened fairly late. So some of the newspapers will have just been able to squeak in the story. This is the story of Paddy Cosgrave, the chief executive of the Web Summit, resigning. Let us not forget how significant the Web Summit is. We're talking about an entity that employs in and around 300 and something people. There are 70,000 people every year who show up to it. It was once a significant contributor to the economy in Dublin. It is now a significant contributor to the economy in Lisbon. And when you take the taxes paid by all of the various people who work there, plus the corporation tax off the fairly significant profits, I think it made three million in profit alone in its last year of trading, It ain't a small entity and it is very significant in the tech world and the man who has built it up from nothing has now fallen on his sword. Adrian Weckler is uh, the man responsible for the independence tech coverage and tech analysis and he's with us this morning. Morning, Adrian. Morning, Anton. It was sort of on the cards and a lot of people said that it was the only way to extricate the summit from the problems that he had gotten it into, but that didn't mean that it was definitely going to happen. What do you think caused it? I think without any shadow of a doubt, what caused it was the number and the scale and the profile of the companies that were walking away from the Web Summit. So I think there was a half expectation in the tech community uh, and in the media that Paddy Cosgrave would kind of brazen it out or would stick with it because, let us not forget, this is his company. He owns over 80% of it. And he would identify himself very, very closely with this company. It must have taken a huge amount for him to walk away from it. But you have to understand the value of the Web Summit. We were getting into the territory of existential threat because it wasn't just, um, you know, uh, venture capitalists or the Israeli tech community. It was the giants like Amazon and Intel and Google and Meta. And some of these companies were not just turning up with speakers. They were also partners of the Web Summit. Amazon, for example, Amazon Web Services. It is not only a partner for uh, the Web Summit in Lisbon. It's also a partner for the Web Summit in Qatar in three months' time, three and a half months' time. So you're talking about a situation where the Web Summit's name, its brand in the US as a whole, was now becoming synonymous with... A, with something that big blue chip companies could not be associated with. And and all because of Paddy Cosgrave's views and, and his position and his comments. So I think he looked at the scenario, he looked at his company, which is worth anywhere between two, 200 and 350 million euro, um, uh, we're, we're told. He looked at the plunging value, he looked at the existential threat and he decided, I own most of this thing. And and there are also almost 300 people working for the company. So I really need to, to, to step away. It's the only thing I can do. So this is the definitive example of money talking. I think it is. Now, Paddy Cosgrave gave a speech to staff on Friday where he apologized to them for having brought all this on their heads. And he tried to reassure them that jobs were not at risk. And he said that, you know, the, the Web Summit has quite a lot of cash in terms of cash reserves. Um, it, it has quite a few millions to keep going. And he assured them that the Web Summit will go ahead and that um, 
you know, the, the medium to long term looked good for the Web Summit, but the scale and the depth of of what was happening, um, I think, spoke more than that. You would know a lot of the players in, involved in and around this. I mean, when you look at the cast, so you've got, you've Intel, mm-hmm. you've Siemens, you've, uh, as you say, Google, you had um, Amazon Web Services, you had mm-hmm. Meta. When you talk to them and, and the, the senior people involved in those kind of companies, what's their take on all of this? Because Paddy Cosgrave saying things that are controversial is not like it is a new discovery that he does this. Mm. Well, you see, you have to put that in context, okay? Because our perception of Paddy Cosgrave saying controversial things is most often in in an Irish context, where he's taking positions against the Irish government or uh, or maybe the media or or other figures of authority. The multinationals don't care about that. That's not relevant to them really in in any way. Now he gets involved or he inserts himself into what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And that does concern them because you, you have to understand how core and how critical a part of the overall tech ecosystem, the Israeli tech community, the venture capital community uh, is, and how sympathetic a lot of big US multinationals and Western multinationals in general are to that position and particularly to this really deep-seated core um you know, concern uh, that that people have who are around the, the the you know the state of Israel and 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 what happened to them um, in relation to, to Hamas, they have very strong views on that, and that's not to get into the rights and wrongs of the issue themselves. That's just the position. That's just the constituency that Paddy Cosgrave was inflaming. And so, when I talk to multinationals about this, what they they, they really said they were coming under pressure from some like very influential um, and very passionate um, figures who sympathized with the Israeli position. And that's just the fact, that's just life. That is, you know, a big part of the tech community and they couldn't be associated with because they were starting to be lobbied. They were starting to be, uh, you know, associated with, you know, being anti-Israel and it just wasn't worth their while. Well, they looked at it and they said, you know, this isn't worth it. Can I ask one thing related to that, Adrian, to wrap us up? Uh, I don't know whether or not this is me putting on my tinfoil hat, but the fact that Israel went so far as to lobby and the fact that Israel went so far as to put diplomatic pressure on uh, Portugal, which it has done, and it'll be interesting to see whether or not we see uh, withdrawals from some of the Portuguese government figures who are uh, appearing at the, the Web Summit. Is there any possibility that Israel will seek to interfere with the smooth running of the Web Summit? I I don't I don't know if you could say that it depends what you mean by interfere I mean if like the Israeli uh, ambassador to Portugal already uh, you know it, it expressed very strong views against the web summit and already said that they were pulling out so if if you regard that as being interfering with the running of the web summit then yes a soft yes but on the other hand will they do any more I'm not sure um I, I, from from my perspective, it looks it still looks like the web summit is going to go ahead in Lisbon. I, I think it will. I think they will get pro, you know tens of thousands of people probably um, to turn up. And it's also notable that some of the uh, certainly as we speak, I'm not aware that there that some of the other giant companies like Alibaba, which is of course a Chinese company, 
they haven't pulled out as far as I'm aware. So there will be still be companies there and there will be attendees there. But there still is momentum on the pullout, particularly on the US side. And that's what the Web Summit uh, really, really need to rest. I do expect more withdrawals. So they really need to rest that now. Adrian, thank you very much for coming on on a Sunday morning. That is Adrian Weckler, the uh, tech correspondent and editor for The Independent. Now, I'm joined in studio by David Davenpower, former uh, RTE correspondent. I think saying former RTE correspondent seems to knock you down a pay grade or two, David. You were... I've had several lives. One of them is as an RTE correspondent. <laughs> former uh, anchor of a Morning Ireland, former political correspondent for some time as well. There are very few roles that you didn't hold within I RTE. established the first independent radio newsroom in the country as well with Century Radio all those years ago. Well, much of this will relate to what we have to talk about as we go on, because there is a lot in the papers that David will be analysing. He'll be joined by Nolene Blackwell, uh, who is just on the cusp of retiring from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. I am. When do you go? I finish up on Friday, coming. Well, congratulations. I'm working hard all weekend, just in case all those people who, who need me to do something before I go. <laughs> and lastly, we have Anna-Marie McHugh, who is Assistant Managing Director of the National Ploughing Association. Them, what is responsible for the ploughing championships? We were talking just a second ago about Web Summit and the general scale. Web Summit, 70,000 people a year. Ploughing championships, 260? Yes, anywhere between 200,000 and 200, 300,000 any one year. We will talk about more about this after the break, but before we uh, do, we do need to take the break. In one word, do you think the resignation of Paddy Cosgrave has done enough to stop the bleed in the Web Summit? No. Anne-Marie McHugh, before the break, I had asked you whether or not Paddy Cosgrave's resignation would be enough to stem the hemorrhaging of money and of partnerships from the Web Summit. You say no. Why? Because um, I think it's the, it's the event that he, he has damaged. Um, and the people that pulled out of the event won't, they're not going to come back next week because he's not there. Um, Does it not give them cover? Can they not say, well, he has fallen on his sword, therefore we can continue our engagement? No, it's the association. It's by association. You know, you have to hear your public, you have to hear your clients. I'm not saying we're great at doing it all the time, but when something starts coming through to you, and, you know, be it on email, be it on text, be it on social media, that, you know, your stance on something or the direction you're taking with, with your event is wrong. If it keeps coming at you, you have to listen and you have to take take action. Like we would often get requests, often get requests to take a stand on something nationally. We don't because we're non-political, non-sectarian. We have to be in the line of what we're doing because we can't take a stance for the 1700 exhibitors that we have at our event. We just can't. Talk to me a little bit about momentum, because one of the things when you go to the ploughing is, it, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but it is almost like a positive networking pyramid scheme. You get one big distributor and that begets another. And there's a sense that it has to keep always going forward and expanding and, and, and uh, growing. Is it possible to have the kind of knockback that the Web Summit has had and recover? Whatever about short term, long term, is it possible? Yeah, yeah I do. I, I think you can. Look, there, there's obviously a need for it. There's a demand for it. Um, and unless somebody's going to slip in there, you know, um, alongside and take, o- take over that, it has. But it, it'll just have to to stand stand up and, and accept where it's at and review and talk to, talk to its people. And um, where's Paddy going from here? Is he still the backbone of it? Um, you know, look, he, he's done fantastic stuff. There's no question of that. Just, I suppose... Didn't know when to stand back and just kind of take a back seat. Well, on that topic, David Davenpower, the, we saw recently uh, Elon Musk resigning as the chief executive of Twitter and pretty much nobody noticed because it made no difference to anything because he owns Twitter and therefore is the entire controller of it. 
Paddy Cosgrave, as far as I understand, owns 80% of this entity. Yeah, that's the complicating factor. He owns 80% of a 300 million euro uh, company. The fact that he's no longer CEO uh, doesn't really cut the mustard. Now, you may say, well, could he put his shares in trust? Uh, There's a very bitter litigation going on uh, concerning him and uh, two partners. It's absorbed a lot of time in the courts, cost a huge amount of money. Uh, So any change in the structure of the company is going to be legally very problematical and probably challenged by uh, the two uh, former directors that are suing him. So it's a very complicated situation brought about entirely uh, by Paddy Cosgrave's impetuousness and narcissism. Uh, Some of his tweets have been quite frankly outrageous, uh, suggesting that the the government here uh, is a crime syndicate, uh, justifying bags of excrement being thrown at uh, politicians here. Uh, like He was able to get away with this kind of rather infantile stuff, uh, but he, he stuck his toe into the shark-invested waters of the Middle East and got his leg taken off at the knee. And um, really, it's hard to have any sympathy for him. But it's a big problem for the 300-odd employees of the Web Summit. Uh, I agree with Anne-Marie that the, um, the uh, momentum uh, is against... his decision is unlikely to stem the momentum against the web, the web, web summit. It very much remains to be seen what happens. But, you know, when you're cancelled, you're cancelled. But that thing of having a war on so many different fronts, I mean, we, we saw during the week a, a legal action against the landlord over coffee grounds going down the sink, ranging all the way through to hundreds of millions in play in the two separate high court actions, as I understand it, with the, the two yep. founding members. Plus this, it's not a good position to be in. It's not a good position to be in because um, people will be wondering how much attention you can devote to the Web Summit itself, which is the cash cow that... uh, um, So, uh, look, uh, my take on it for what it's worth is that he can't continue as 80% owner of the Web Summit. Um, If they get through this particular summit, that will be an achievement. And I think the company will then have to take stock and figure out exactly what is to be done uh, but he does own 80% of it, and that's the bottom line. And if we go back to Adrian Weckler's numbers in relation to the, the likely valuation of the Web Summit, a uh, sale would net him somewhere in the order of 160 to 200 million euro, which wouldn't be a bad way to salve your wounds. Yeah, but as I say, um, the litigation that's currently underway would massively complicate any share sale. What do you make, by the way, Nolan, in all of this? Every now and then somebody puts their head above the parapet and says, yeah. cancel culture. Yeah. Does this relate even vaguely to that? Yeah, it does. And, and you know, if you take it away from the Web Summit and the actual comments in this one, one of the things that over years in so many different ways uh, that I've been working on is recognising how sometimes businesses are bigger than countries, um, uh, more influential than the UN uh, in so many ways. And, and then you kind of, you get disheartened when, and, and there's a lot of work done to identify how businesses have um, to understand human rights and can promote human rights and can actually destroy human rights as well. And you look at this and you just see at the end of the day, it just going back, you know, to, to, to the core point, once um, somebody decides to put their head over the parapet, make a political opinion, uh, then it's the the business, if it is going to be impacted, the industry says, no, we won't 
go there. We won't stand up for whatever it is we stand up for. No, this is not to say that I think Paddy Cosgrave said it correctly, but he he made a point and there is seems to be no space to allow somebody who is influential in business to actually adopt a human rights approach as well if there's the slightest risk to their business. Now, I do see businesses doing good things from time to time. They will take on causes, but they are so cautious about it because of any risk to profit. Is that not all within his gift? I mean, the vehicles that Paddy Cosgrave had that gave him access to the public discourse were his Twitter account and his web summit. He has both of them. And, he and has, of course, he also has the ditch and various other correct. ways as so well. So he has yeah. all of the avenues well, that he, he always had. Of course, he doesn't interfere with the ditch, he says. He yeah. has made a decision that has impacted on his own clients mm. and their decision to buy his service. Mm. That's hardly an act of national cancellation. That is commerce. No. Uh, n- n- well, I don't think it's an act of... I, I, I do think there is... Uh, um, uh, that social media has given us this sort of cancel thing. Actually, though, if you're not on Twitter, if you're not following Twitter, a lot of people don't really notice the cancellation uh, that happens. Uh, but but this has real serious implications because, uh, as as David said, he put his toe in the Middle East water in Middle East waters, and he found how very dangerous that can be. Uh, the, the point is, though. You see this again and again, companies that will not speak up for even what they believe to be right, what they know to be right, because the risk of damage to their profits, to their investors, and they will actually magnify their their profits and their investors, even at the risk of human rights from time to time. So it's just it's just one of those bigger conversations that's very hard to to, to fathom I sometimes. Good point there, you know what I mean? There are times when you have your facts and you know it's the right thing to do. You do need to speak up, you know, you, because if you're a person that is influential or an association that's in, influential, um, when the facts are right, poor Paddy is always on the edge. He's always playing with, with the edge. And I, I personally think the Web Summit was, was plenty big, plenty good on its own. It didn't need him playing mm-hmm. on the edge. And maybe he starts to believe that that was nearly part of the PR machine of the thing that was keeping the web summit going. I think that's exactly it. I think that he um, uh, he assumed that he had an, inde- an, inde- an importance and a stature independent of the web summit, and that uh, he, basically he, got, he his ego his ego got the better of him, and he extraordinarily seemed to have overlooked the uh, central position of Israel in the whole tech uh, uh, tech sector and decided to uh, plough ahead with a tweet that was obviously going to cause trouble at this time. So, look, you know, uh, it's it's a question of somebody getting too big for their boots. There's that, great that happened a long time ago with Paddy, of course. There's that great <laughs> line, that, that the warning that Ed Murrow gave for broadcasters, that was that don't, don't allow the fact that your voice is amplified to the degree that it travels from one side of the country to the other to let you think that it confers on you a greater wisdom than when it merely travels from one side of the bar. To the other. While we're on the topic of people speaking their minds, we should talk about President uh, Higgins because he has uh, apparently annoyed our own government uh, coalition, who, according to the papers today, are deeply hacked off that he has decided to tiptoe into um, the political sphere. And he has also annoyed the Israeli ambassador. I'm concerned about uh, spreading misinformation and stating different misinformation as if we're facts when they're not. Israel is abiding by international law. We're happy to comment on that, to talk about that. But misinformation like that, I don't think it helps, especially in a 
dangerous time like the present. Now, David, I, I mentioned at the outset that the list of, of uh, former accomplishments that are accomplishments that you have in the CV, one of them being political correspondent. Give us the political analysis of this. Did he go too far? Uh, well, I think uh, Shane Ross writing in today's Sunday Independent said that we all knew what we were signing up for when we elected Michael D. And I think that's absolutely right. I think the government, from what I gather, is is annoyed. But I think John Lee puts it well in the uh, Mail on Sunday, where he says they, they, uh, they don't, ministers are upset about uh, his growing tendency to make controversial statements that could or could not be beyond his remit. But they're unwilling, really, given that he's coming to the end of his career, to make too much of a fuss about it. Now, there are some that say that, you know, did these utterances, uh, which are overtly political, damage the office of the president and that, you know, the next incumbent could be saying things that perhaps don't chime with the public. In fairness to Michael D, he's a politician to his, politician to his fingertips. And, you know, the, 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 the voters out there, I don't think, would take great issue with anything he has said. Now, there are some hypersensitive politicians who kind of clutch their pearls every now and then. But uh, I think Michael D is canny enough at this stage uh, to, to sense the public mood and not go really, not do a Paddy Cosgrave on it. <laughs> well, were you surprised then, Nolan, that the Israeli ambassador chose to engage with it? Because the, uh, as David is saying, it seems that the, the Irish political system decided, look, starve this of oxygen and it will quietly go away. She has now put it squarely on the front of the Sunday Indo. The front of the Sunday Independent and a two-page interview with her where the very final paragraph mentions that the president uh, says that there's no point in in each person representing the other person's opinion. Um, Every single uh, day since the uh, Hamas invasion into Israel, followed by the revenge uh, attacks of of Israel, um, uh, to, to... Finish Hamas, they say. Um, the Israeli uh, government, their ministers, their ambassadors have engaged with every single piece of uh, criticism that there is or perceived criticism or possible criticism. So they they seem to have taken a very, very strong view that they will challenge everything along the way. And it is such a complicated situation. It's really important that we do see both sides. And, you know, the, 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 the president... Uh, funnily enough, complaining about the um, European um, Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen going and and uh, prom- uh, and speaking to Israel without recognising the attacks on uh, on the Palestinian people as well. It's funny that that's the context in which he is now um, being criticised for going over his role, uh, because while what he says may be justified and wanted by the people, there is it's a very complex area, and the Taoiseach, uh, the Taunista. Um, the government have to be the people who take this on board first. But exactly as David says, like uh, President Michael D uh, knows what he can say and, you know, and, and he will say it uh, because that's who he is. But there's a fascinating blog on the RTE website by Paul Cunningham this morning where he point, he's spoken to people in the street in Tel Aviv uh, in Israel and uh, uh, people who, 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 knowledgeable people he has spoken to, ordinary people, have a view of Ireland as being profoundly anti-Israeli. And this may come as a surprise to some people because I think that, you know, we regard ourselves as neutral, middle of the road, but not from an Israeli perspective. And, you know, I pick up on something uh, Nolene uh, said there. She described the 
uh, attacks uh, on Gaza as revenge attacks. Well, the Israelis would very much see them as self-defense. And to tell you the truth, I'm inclined to agree with them. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a bias in the narrative here that is anti-Israeli. And, you know, when you saw the demonstrations this week and some of the utterances in the Doyle from people before Prophet, you'd have to say that there is a, an element of anti-Semitism creeping into the narrative here in Ireland. Well, that's exactly what the ambassador says in that interview. She describes it in those terms, says that it is effectively the modern anti-Semitism and that yeah. the, you can be pro-Palestine and also pro-Israel. You can, uh, but you can't be pro pro-Hamas and not be anti-Semitic. Uh, Hamas have as their avowed aim the destruction of the Jewish state of Israel. If that isn't anti-Semitism, I don't know what is. But, but the Palestinian people are, are not necessarily anti-Semitic. You know, I do think it is holding those two things together. You can be pro, pro-Israel and the people of Israel yeah, yeah, and their I, rights I just, and I, the people I, of Palestine I, and their rights as well. But there is, there's such, um, there's such a, a sort, the word anti-Semitism is a really hard word to use for people who who have genuinely held concerns about the attacks on the Palestinian people right now in yeah, this but circumstance. I, I, I make one observation. I, I, I take what you, uh, you, 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 I accept what you say up to a point, um, but why has nobody from the Palestinian side condemned what happened, uh, condemned the murder of 1,400 people, the injury? 4,000 people injured, babies mutilated, 200. Yeah, but, the, but the Irish I mean, government we, has, one, 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 Just, just uh, make one observation. We heard the uh, Palestinian ambassador or envoy to Ireland on uh, RTE about 10 days ago expressly refusing to condemn yeah. what happened. Now, she's speaking for the Palestinian people, is she not? So, uh, well, I, I presume she's speaking for the Palestinian Authority. And we, I do think we need to separate out sometimes the governments from the people. And, and um, a, a collective punishment of the people is not acceptable, even if that's the case. So, so the Israeli ambassador admits of no wrong by the Israeli government. The Palestinian ambassador admits of no wrong by the Palestinian authority, even though it is a different authority. But there is just this point where I do think we have to be allowed to say we have a concern about what somebody does as a people without being called anti-Semitic, without being labelled in a word that I would find it offensive applied to myself. But I believe that there must be some recognition of harm that is happening to the Palestinian people, where you do have to question what the people are expected to do. They can go nowhere. They have shoved they've been shoved now into a space. There's one um, uh, Irishman who was on a long holiday from Blanchardstown, he and his uh, wife and three children, according to today's papers, are living in um, uh, what sounds like a lovely house, a four-bedroomed house, with 90 people, with no food and nine no water. Zero. Nine zero people. So you're just like... But, I, I, but what I, precipitated I get this cold. crisis? I, I, right. So, but I do, I do want to be able to note that, address it, and to say... My heart is sore as a result of that, as it is 
the families who have hostages being taken and kept. And for that, okay. I blame Hamas. Uh, text saying, I just, uh, this is uh, back to where we started before with the, the uh, Paddy Cosgrave story. I just Googled Paddy Cosgrave and he is never out of controversy. Saying something at the top of his head, then apologises. It has happened numerous times. Well, this is the point that David was making earlier on. It has happened numerous times. It hasn't happened numerous times with this particular target audience and with this kind of reception. So an awful lot of chickens are coming home to roost fairly rapidly. Uh, I have with me Nolene Blackwell from the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, David Davenpower and Anna-Marie McHugh. Anna-Marie, of course, Assistant Managing Director of the National Ploughing Association. Coverage today suggesting that the uh, grievances following the budget and the allocation to the HSE or insufficient allocation to the HSE, depending on whose view you take, is uh, causing things to come fundamentally asunder in the government. Do you believe it? Unfortunately, I, I probably do. Um, I, I guess I was fortunate in a way that I was uh, out of the country for the budget. I've been away for a number of weeks and I was in a country um, more in the eastern part of Europe where nurses received €250 Euro a week and prices in the supermarket weren't that much different than, than Ireland. So, you know, in many ways, we still have it good even though prices are going crazy. Um, yes, I, I, I see a budget hurtling its way towards us. I don't see it as the answer. It's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix the 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 health budget. It's not going to fix the housing crisis. An election um, isn't. I, I don't see it as it is. You know, the people that are promising to do, to fix it out there, you know, if their ideas were that good, why isn't somebody else using it that's already in government and has the power to, to use their proposals and their changes? Um, so unfortunately, I just think it's more money going to be spent on huge election costs and taking another year to get a, a new government in place and get them structured and set up. And all the crisis, the major crises are still happening. Well, we're kind of stuck. We, I think we legally have to have one anyway fairly soon. So at least we know the costs are... We're, we're are, not spending it. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that are there. But look, the things that are wrong in, in the country have been wrong a long time and we just need to, to, to get our administration systems in place and get things fixed. David, is this just what happens at the end of... Uh, what is it now? 12, 14? How long are they in? Well, they are, they are pretty tired. Uh, Fine Gael is in bad shape in particular. Quote from a senior Fine Gael source, uh, John Drennan, in the Mail on Sunday. Uh, quote, the sense is growing within, uh, uh, within Fine Gael that if we hang on until September or October, we'll be dead men walking. Fianna Fáil will be fine. They're cozying up to Sinn Féin already and nobody wants the Greens. So that, that's, I think, the kernel of it. And uh, whatever, I mean, there's, there's talk about an early election in the aftermath of the budget. Uh, I, I don't sense talking to people around Leinster House that the tensions are that great. But I'll tell you this much, an early election wouldn't be a bad idea for this government because it's not going to get any better. Uh, I mean, you will find people around Leinster House who say that it's be crazy to hang on until the uh, local elections because the local elections are only going to be a springboard for Sinn Féin who did so badly at the last local elections they're bound to improve their position this time. Oh yeah and we've Ivan Yates saying they're likely to net 70 seats is his take on it? That's right I was actually at the function that Ivan said that at he was launching a book by a friend of mine I was helping to launch it myself uh, Tim Ryan's book about uh, the Kenny report oh, 50 years ago and why it was never implemented to curb land prices but yeah Ivan is of the view that there's a juggernaut coming coming down the road uh, with Sinn Féin on the front of it uh, and that everybody else said just really better get out of the way. Well, the, the Greens have their conference this weekend and Minister Roderick O'Gorman is going to be joining us just after 11 o'clock so we can put that quote to him that uh, David had there that nobody wants the Greens and get his reaction to it. One of the things though that I do want to talk to one of our panellists about is the situation that her organisation faces 
on the cusp of her departure from it. That being Nolene Blackwell, the organisation, of course, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. You're retiring after an eight-year period on um, Friday. The situation that you leave behind, I see a, a piece, an interview with you today saying that for victims of uh, sexual violence and domestic violence, it is still an incredibly difficult thing to take a prosecution and to go through the court system. Yeah, so this is on foot of a trial that collapsed in the courts um, last week where the complainant, a, a young woman, was um, uh, giving evidence on behalf of the state and there were four defendants. And um, and in the course of the case, the prosecution asked that the complainant be allowed to give evidence by video for whatever reason, because these are held in private. I don't know why, but that application was refused. So the question re-arose. This is not the first time this has come up. It has been on the cards for a number of years now. The, the situation whereby a complainant in a sexual offence is very often given the central evidence in a sex offence case because sexual offences take place where there's non-consensual sexual activity. So the complainant has to explain why it is non-consensual. The complainant is a person who has no legal training normally or, you know, no, no legal experience and has no lawyer in court at all to help them in advance. We go in Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and other rape crisis centres and other places go in to offer psychological support, but we may not tell them and we're not trained to give them legal advice and support. And, and they are on their own. The only person often in the system who knows nothing about the law or how to give evidence in some ways because a guard might have to give evidence but they're trained to do it um, someone from a sexual assault treatment unit so the point of this is and the point of the case which I can go on at huge length about and which has been on the cards for government for the past few years and to their credit they know and are taking steps to change it but the point is that this person totally unrepresented without their own lawyer in a case with four defendants, is up against 12 lawyers. Each defendant has a team of three experienced expert lawyers. And it has to be said, Nolan, even if you are very abreast of the legal system, it is still an extremely difficult yeah. thing to give evidence. I know a number of solicitors who dread the prospect yes. of having to get up in a witness box. Yes, and, and I, I dreaded it myself the odd time I had to do it, even if it was only to prove that someone owned a property or something like that. In these cases, guards will often say it's very hard to give evidence and they're given a very hard time. This is someone who has no experience at all. Remember what they're doing. They're talking about something extraordinarily intimate, something that they they say uh, took place non-consensually and that's uh, uh, and they're a witness for the prosecution prosecution will do their best but they cannot act for them and so this person is in that very very difficult situation what other countries have taken much further than we have is that in these cases, very often a person can give their uh, evidence by video link. So they, if you'll excuse me putting it this way, they are not within spitting or smelling distance of the person whom they say raped them or sexually abused them. This looks like a norm. It has not damaged the justice system. It doesn't system. seem a big ask It hasn't damaged fair trials in any way at all. That's really where we need to go next. It is in the programme for government, A, that, um, that people will get legal advice available to them in the course of the case. That seems to me cruel not to give it to them right now, but there's a process obviously to go through. And then the video link, which works so well in other common law systems, should be a big help. 
Uh, I should say congratulations on your tenure in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. I remember talking to you when you departed the Free Legal uh, Advice Centres and moved yes. into the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and I have little doubt I'll be fairly soon talking to you in whatever is up next because you don't uh, strike me as the retiring type. But congratulations Thank on you. the eight-year tenure there. Before we wrap up, Anna-Marie, I had forgotten. You wanted to pass on congratulations. Yeah, I think I'm in a really extraordinary position this morning to say that in the last week, just within the last week, between Saturday and, and Saturday, uh, we won the world contest in Latvia. Our two guys, Eamon Tracy, conventional, John Whelan, reversible. And only last night, our um, competitors in the European competition in Denmark won as well, first and second. Ger Coakley, West Cork won and Dan Donnelly, Wexford second. So we're, we're literally top of the world in blowing. <laughs> well, big thank you to my panel this morning, that being David Davenpower, Nolene Blackwell and Anna-Marie McHugh. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PwC. Sunday mornings from 10 on News Talk.